We'll hear argument now number 94-251, the United States versus Juan Paul Robertson. Uh, Mr. Estrada. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The respondent was a California lawyer who became involved in drug dealing and other crimes. With money obtained from his crimes, he invested in a venture to mine gold in Alaska. He was eventually convicted of narcotics offenses and of violating the Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, known as RICO. RICO makes it a crime for any person to use income derived from a pattern of racketeering activity to acquire an interest in any enterprise, quote, which is engaged in or the activities of which affect interstate or foreign commerce. The Ninth Circuit affirmed the narcotics convictions, but it reversed the RICO conviction for lack of proof that the activities of the gold mining venture affected interstate commerce. The court held that a minimal effect on interstate commerce would be sufficient to satisfy RICO, but that an incidental effect on that commerce would not. The court then found that the government's evidence, including the fact that the gold mining venture hired employees outside of Alaska and purchased equipment outside of Alaska, showed at most an incidental effect on interstate commerce. The Ninth Circuit emphasized that Alaska's geographical isolation means that most supplies and equipment must get there via interstate commerce, and it believed that Alaska's dependence on interstate commerce should not mean that <coughs> local businesses in Alaska are covered by RICO. We brought the case here because the Ninth Circuit's decision conflicts with the view of every other court of appeals that has considered what sort of a jurisdictional uh, proof satisfies the requirements of RICO. I think it's we rather than you who brought the case here. <laughs> well, I stand corrected, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, our argument in the case, now that it is here, Mr. Chief Justice, starts with the language of RICO. And that language reaches all enterprises, the activities of which affect interstate or foreign commerce. This Court's cases make clear that the phrase affect commerce is a term of art that Congress uses to exercise all commerce power it has under the Constitution. And that Congress intended to exercise all of its constitutional power in RICO is confirmed not only by its use of that term of art, but also by the fact that one of its principal goals in enacting RICO, which was to safeguard small businesses from infiltration by organized crime, could likely not be achieved under any narrower view of the jurisdictional requirement. Under RICO, then, in our view, the question is whether the activities of the enterprise, here the gold mining venture, affect commerce when measured by the full constitutional authority of Congress. And under that standard, the evidence in this case was sufficient to meet the government's burden. The Ninth Circuit conceded that respondent and his employees traveled between Alaska <coughs> and the lower 48 states in connection with their work on the mine, that the mine obtained supplies and equipment from the lower 48 states, and the respondent mortgaged a home he owned in Arizona to finance the second mining season in 1986. In addition, the evidence showed that the mine sold a substantial amount of gold in Alaska worth at least $200,000, that the purchasers of the gold were part of a broader market in precious metals that reached beyond Alaska, and that therefore the mine's output was part of a class of activities that in the aggregate substantially affects interstate commerce.
In addition, the evidence showed that the respondent and his associates used the instrumentalities of interstate commerce repeatedly, the mail and the telephones, as part of the business of the mine. In our view, all of that evidence was clearly sufficient to satisfy the government's burden on Mr. Estrada, in your view, is there any uh, business enterprise in America that wouldn't be covered by RICO? What are the limits? As a factual matter, Justice O'Connor, I cannot think of any business in the country that could not be covered by RICO, uh, given that what is at issue is the full constitutional authority of Congress. Uh, I understand that the commerce principle is a limited one, and we do agree with that. However, the facts on which it operates are not limited. And, are, and in our economy on this day, I cannot think of anything uh, that is likely to actually happen in the real world that would not be covered uh, by uh, this Court's cases construing the extent of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. How do you distinguish the situation here from the situation which was argued recently here in the Lopez case? Well, this case is significantly different from Lopez. As I understand the claim of the respondent in Lopez uh, and the view that was followed by the Fifth Circuit in that case, Congress is required to make findings and and to set forth some sort of an explanation as to why it views the activities is trying that it is trying to reach as affecting commerce we do not think that that is the case but even if it were in this case i think congress did that and more. Uh, Congress in this case uh, considered the statute very carefully. It was dealing with a broad national problem uh, that it thought the old laws, both state and federal, had been entirely inadequate to deal with. Well, this case, uh, I mean, uh, Lopez involved a commercial, this case involves a commercial enterprise. Well, that's Uh, right. The only question is whether it's interstate or not. Well, Lopez didn't involve a commercial enterprise at all. It was a gun in a schoolyard. Well, that is, that is true, Justice Scalia. I am not sure that it makes a great deal of difference for purposes of the, the Whether it's authority. commerce doesn't make any difference for purposes of the Commerce Clause. Um, it does make a difference for purposes of the Commerce Clause, Justice Scalia. It may not make a difference for purposes of whether, under the Necessary and Proper Clause, Congress can reach something that is not in itself commerce in order to safeguard. The Necessary and Proper Clause expands the Commerce Clause to cover things that the Commerce Clause would otherwise cover. In effect, yes. That's wonderful. Justice Scalia. Um, but... But when, was, when was the last time since McCulloch versus Maryland that we held to that effect? Oh, Mr. Justice Rehnquist. Um, I'm sorry, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, I think uh, my reading of Wicker versus Filburn would be to that effect. Uh, that case where you say relied on the necessary and proper clause? That is my recollection. I must say that I'm not entirely sure. There are several cases uh, which unfortunately I can't think of in the 1930s and 40s, and especially in the 40s, in which the court restated the view of 
Gibbons versus Ogden and pointed out that that was merely an application of well, the I don't think Gibbons against Ogden relied on the necessary and proper clause the way McCulloch did. That's Gibbons right. against Ogden was just a broad definition of the commerce power. That's right, although in later cases in the 1940s, this Court expressed the view that the broad view that Mr. Chief Justice Marshall had expounded uh, in the Ogden case was, in fact, uh, merely an exposition, even though uh, he didn't himself say so, uh, of the power of Congress because of the combination of the necessary and proper clause. In, in, the, in the Darby case, which was um, Fair Labor Standards Act, and in the Perez case, which was loan sharking, mm-hmm. I, I don't think we used the necessary and proper clause, although uh, I'll refresh my recollection on that to make sure. My understanding, Justice Kennedy, is that there are cases uh, in the 1940s, and I'm f- fairly sure of it because, understandably, I read them recently. I just can't cite you one, and maybe when I rise again, I'll be able to. Uh, but you're not relying on necessary and proper here, are you, Mr. Estrada? Well, in effect, well, I will answer that, that uh, question in two steps, uh, Justice Ginsburg, uh, we don't need to in the sense that I think the evidence in this case, in as much as the enterprise engaged in interstate transactions, doesn't call upon us to do so. Uh, I mean, does it, doesn't our recent decision in the Allied Bruce case have some relevance to, to this problem of what affects commerce? Yes, I, but the only the only reason that it is necessary to point to uh, to the necessary and proper clause, Justice Ginsburg, is that the Commerce Clause in itself, as Justice Scalia pointed out, authorizes Congress to regulate only commerce. And the so-called affectation doctrine that allows Congress to deal with other matters that are not in themselves commerce, but that have an effect on commerce, uh, is usually justified by reference to the necessary and proper clause, even though the cases talk about it as the commerce power. It is not in itself the commerce power uh, in, in the sense that, uh, that, that that term is used in the Constitution. It is a statement of how far Congress can go when it combines the commerce power and the necessary and proper well, you, clause. Well, you say the power is justified. It's justified by whom? By this court's cases have made reference in uh, in uh, in explaining why Congress has been held to have authority to reach matters that are not in themselves commerce uh, to the necessary and proper clause. These are the cases that you can't remember from the 30s and 40s. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, um, but but in fact, and the court has explained on occasion that even though the cases speak of Congress's power to reach anything that affects commerce, uh, some of the more cases, uh, some of the court's cases have been more specific and have 
and have pointed out that Congress under the Commerce Clause can reach only commerce in itself, but that under the Necessary and Proper Clause, Congress can then reach other things that are not in themselves commerce, but that affect commerce. And this Court's cases dealing with whether something affects commerce and saying that, con- that, that Congress has power to reach those matters, uh, I usually uh, are, are logically traceable to, uh, to reasoning based ultimately on the necessary and proper clause. Um, I was going to, to turn to the justifications given by the Court of Appeals. The, the Court of Appeals thought that despite all of the evidence of interstate conduct in this case, uh, the, the fact that the enterprise hired employees and purchased equipment outside of Alaska, that a different result was warranted by its uh, description of the effects of, on commerce as uh, incidental rather than minimal. And that was wrong because this court stated in Wickard versus Felburn <coughs> that the questions as to the constitutional power of Congress really should not be solved by reference to any formula that gives controlling weight to nomenclature, and that the real question is whether actual effects can be identified on commerce, and in this case, they surely could. Uh, the second reason that the Ninth Circuit gave was based on, on the isolation of the state of Alaska, and we do not think that that isolation should count against our case. Uh, It is certainly true that many of the businesses in Alaska have to obtain supplies and equipment from interstate commerce, but that state is hardly unique in that respect, uh, and much the same could be said about Rhode Island or Wyoming. Uh, No state of the Union is entirely self-sufficient. And in our view, it makes little sense to say <clears throat> that the greater a state's dependence on interstate commerce, the less likely it will be that the activities within that state will be deemed to affect interstate commerce. Uh, now, does the Sherman Antitrust Act uh, have a, a lesser scope of coverage? No. We think that the Sherman Act, the Hobbs Act, and RICO all go to the limits of the Commerce Clause, and therefore... But the language in each is somewhat different, is it not? That is right. Uh, The the language in each of them is somewhat different. Some of them use the word obstruct commerce, some of them use impede commerce, and some of them use affect commerce. And as this Court has made clear in the NLRB cases, particularly the... Polish case versus the NLRB, all of those are terms of art that are used to invoke the full authority of Congress under the Commerce Clause. And therefore, all of those terms have been interpreted by this Court when Congress uses them as going to the limits of the Commerce Clause. Do I have to agree with that, to agree with the government in this case? Because I don't agree with it as to the Sherman Act, as you know. Yes, I do know, uh, Justice Scalia. In this case, no, because in our view, the evidence in this case, and this is how we tried to to prove most of these cases, was actually sufficient 
to show that the enterprise was engaged in interstate commerce. It hired its employees outside of Alaska, and it purchased equipment and supplies. affecting interstate commerce at all, does it? No, it does not. Um, it is — The language is in restraint of trade between the states, isn't it? That's right. Uh, and I know the view that you express in Summit Health, uh, as I understand your view in that case, uh, the view was that the activity in that case could be reached by Congress, but that in passing the Sherman Act, Congress did not exercise its full authority. In this case, it seems fairly plain to us, at least, that Congress, in using the words affecting commerce, did what you thought he had not done in the Sherman Act, because by the time RICO was passed, Congress had been told again and again by this Court that if it wished to invoke its full power under the Commerce Clause, these were the words it had to use. And therefore, no, I, even if, if you continue to hold your view as to the Sherman Act, Justice Scalia, uh, that should not uh, keep you from sort of — from taking our view of this case under this statute. Mr. Estrada, your, your opponent relies in part at least on Gulf oil against cop paving. Uh, how do you distinguish that case? That case stated that when Congress uh, engages or defines a class of activities, the Court's role in effect is significantly different. But f from the examples that the Court cited in that footnote 12, especially the Perez case, it is evident that, <clears throat> that what the Court was getting at is that when Congress itself does what it did in the Perez case, that no further proof of interstate commerce at all is called for in any given case. That doesn't really answer the question here because Congress exercised uh, its full power under the Commerce Clause, and that full power could be met by a class of activities analysis or any other way in which Congress could lawfully exercise its power. And the, the significant difference that the Court was talking to in that case was the difference between having to prove the fact in every case and having to have no evidence whatsoever of the fact in any one case. In, in this case, Mr. Estrada, uh, was there an argument before the jury that interstate <laughs> commerce was not affected? No. And was there any objection to the instruction that the court gave? No. The instruction given uh, by, by the court is basically the Ninth Circuit pattern jury instruction, I think is 8.34, uh, and it doesn't really go into detail as to interstate commerce. Uh, the, uh, that was not objected to, and as can be expected in most of these cases, uh, when the case was tried to the jury, this wasn't really what the case was turning on. I mean, the main contention on the other side was that he had not, in fact, been involved in drug trafficking. So the Ninth Circuit's view was uh, that this case should not have been submitted to the jury as a matter of law, I take it? That's right. That's right. Um, and we think that that's clearly wrong under, under this Court's cases. The, the Ninth Circuit's view is that the evidence in this case was so insufficient that the respondent was entitled to a judgment of acquittal on the RICO count. Uh, and that that's the end of that count. Obviously, we cannot, we cannot go back 
to the jury and would it, would it, it have been proper for the uh, trial court to tell the jury uh, if you find that there were trips between Arizona and Alaska and if you find that any of the gold over a three-year period was sold in interstate commerce, then I instruct you as a matter of law that interstate commerce is involved? Would that yes, yes, because, yes, that, that would be a, an instruction that is tailored to the facts, and it is all right for a court to instruct the jury on the legal significance of facts so long as it makes clear that the question as to whether the facts exist is for the jury. Mr. Estrada, would the following argument be sound? It would go like this, that if Congress wanted to make it unequivocally clear that it was legislating to the fullest extent of its powers, it would have, it would have described the, the activity of the enterprise in this way. It would have spoken of an enterprise which engages in activities that affect interstate commerce. That would have made it clear that the the enterprise was simply one participant in a broader activity or conjuries of activities that have, in the aggregate, the substantial effect. But that what Congress, in fact, did was to speak of an enterprise, the activities of which affect commerce, which suggests that we are speaking or looking not to an aggregate but to the particular activities of that enterprise and to them alone. Is, is that sort of contrast in language the basis for a sound argument that Congress was taking a narrower view here? I don't think so, Justice Souter. Uh, Congress usually will write the, the words affect commerce at the end of the of the language that otherwise makes conduct a, a crime on the understanding that that goes to the full power of So that whenever you see it, it's basically a signal for the shorthand, whatever we can do. Yes, doing. and I would give us an example to you, the Scarborough case, which dealt with coming into possession of a firearm in commerce or in affecting commerce. This Court held in that case, in the Scarborough case, that even though the language said possession affecting commerce, that that requirement would be satisfied by proof that the firearm had traveled in interstate commerce at some point in human history, even if it had nothing whatsoever to do with the conduct of the defendant, and if that had happened before the defendant came to have the firearm. And I think cases like that properly give Congress an understanding. That, that argument, in effect, I guess, is, and I'm not saying it's an illegitimate argument, but I guess that argument, in effect, is that whenever Congress uses the term affecting commerce, by using the broadest, most umbrella kind of term, uh, it, uh, it therefore is including any of the kind of more restrictive tests, like uh, involving the instrumentalities uh, or involving uh, goods that have moved and so on. That is exactly yeah. our argument, yeah. Justice Souter, yeah. and I think that that's... No matter how the rest of the sentence reads, so long as the word affecting is in it, uh, that, that's it. It's sort of a... It does everything. Well, I, I, yes, and I understand that that... Yes. Not, yes, and I understand that that may not be the best way to write the, the statute, but if the court's case is... Not, not the best way to read it either, I don't think. Well, I would respectfully disagree, Justice Scalia, because uh, once 
phrases have acquired the status of terms of art, and Congress has been told that it can go to the very limit by using them, uh, they how would it have, uh, how would it have expressed the thought that a normal English-speaking person would express by saying uh, any enterprise, the activities of which affect interstate or foreign commerce. Suppose I wanted to really require that the activities of that enterprise affect interstate commerce rather than uh, uh, the activities that that enterprise engages in when engaged in by others in the aggregate. How would I how would I express the thought that I would normally express by saying any enterprise, the activities of which affect interstate commerce? Well, you could say you cannot say it anymore in English. Well, uh, if that is what one means, one could say the activities of which considered in isolation affect interstate commerce. I mean, all we're talking about is how do we determine congressional intent, and in a world in which the Court's cases have told Congress that these words have independent legal significance, uh, while it may make more sense in an alternative world to sort of write the statutes differently, um, Congress, in effect — And you really think that that's what our our cases say now, that whenever Congress uses the word affecting, the rest of the sentence doesn't matter? Well, I think that it matters in the sense that the activities of the enterprise, of course, have mm-hmm. to affect commerce. But one of the tests that that may make that true under this Court's cases, and especially the NLRB cases, is that they may affect commerce because considered with other light activities throughout the country, the effect on commerce is substantial. If that's what we've said, maybe we should unsay it, because it certainly is a trap for the unwary legislator who thinks that he's speaking English, and it turns out that if he uses the word affecting, all sorts of unreal things happen. But it isn't, because one of the canons of this Court's cases is that Congress is presumed to know what this court's cases say. And in effect, if you had a, a case that told Congress that it could... Because our cases are presumed to say reasonable things. Well, and maybe but even... we should adhere to that presumption. Justice Scalia, if you had a case that told Congress that it could reach to the full limits of the Commerce Clause by, by affixing to the statute the score of Swanee River, and Congress did that, it should be taken to have reached to the limits of the Commerce Clause. And that's basically all that we're arguing here. Because what we've come up with in, in your answers to me and to Justice Scalia are a kind of three variants, one of which would, would make it uh, expressly clear that we were talking about uh, an enterprise whose activities, when aggregated with others, affected. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, the answer that you gave to Justice Scalia, something to the effect like the activities of which alone affect interstate commerce, and what we've got in the statute is something in between. And I suppose you could simply on the basis of these answers argue that we have a, an ambiguous statute here, even though each of those three variants uses the word effect. And I suppose if we get to that point, uh, the thing to do is to look to legislative history. I, you don't want to say that to Justice Scalia, but you could say that to me. I have uh, said it to Justice Scalia before Justice Souter, and I didn't do 
do me much good at the time. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yes, if that were necessary to ascertain the meaning of Congress, our view is that the use of the term of the term of art itself makes it clear. Of course, the and government's view is so expansive, it really doesn't even matter if you use affecting, does it? Because it's not used in the Sherman Act, and you take the same, it covers everything view of the Sherman Act, right? There so never, if you either use affecting or, alternatively, do not use affecting, it covers everything. If you use affecting or obstructing of, or several of the other words that this Court has identified. Well, is that really be true that the, the government's position is if two pizza parlors in downtown Anchorage fix their prices, the Sherman Act applies? Yes, it is. <laughs> and I see that, that my time is running low. You didn't accept that. <laughs> <would it> be, <laughs> just in case one didn't go that far, is, is this distinguishable? I, yes. Is it possible? Because yes, because as Justice Scalia pointed out, it is possible to make good arguments, as he did in Summit Health, that the Sherman Act, because of its different language, doesn't go so far. That would not really be there for RICO, which has much more expansive language. Mr. You mean one could look to see whether or not Congress intended each individual farmer, the, con the class of which affects the price of wheat, also to fall within the statute? And sometimes the answer would be yes, and sometimes no, depending on what the statute's about. We would know. We would look to see whether the language uses by, used by Congress reaches to the full limit of the Commerce Clause. And if it does, then that class of activities analysis would be available in every case. If I, if I may reserve... Very well, Mr. Estrada. Thank you. Mr. Warren, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the question before the Court is whether the Commerce Clause has any limitations. Does the term interstate commerce mean anything, or is it a jurisdictional fiction? This Court's precedent, precedents require that the phrase affects interstate commerce, which has been referred to and is used as part of the RICO statute, require that there be a substantial effect on interstate commerce. The government effectively urges upon this Court a standard of identifiable and perceptible. That is, if there is an activity, whether it be a pizza parlor uh, or the buying of tissue paper, that activity is identifiable. It has a potential effect on interstate commerce and under the government's theory would be cognizable under the RICO statute. Is it open for you to argue this when you did not object to the instruction? The instruction uh, referred to activities of financial institutions that have an effect, however small, on interstate or foreign commerce. Uh, Justice Kennedy, that, that instruction um, was applied to Section 1956, which was one of the racketeering acts, which was a part of uh, count six, was, which was the general RICO count. The general RICO count used the language affects interstate commerce. It did not use the language in any way affects interstate commerce. It would be our position that this is a jurisdictional question which was not waived in any event by the failure to object. Uh, furthermore, there was a request by trial counsel to submit a special instruction uh, on the RICO count. That request was denied by the trial court. Mr. Warren, you use the word has to have a substantial effect. 
So does it turn on the success of the mind, that is, we look to the reality and not the expectation? The, the RICO statute um, talks about, uh, and the, the statute that Mr. Robertson, uh, the respondent, was prosecuted under, talks about actual effects. It does not, as in the Sherman Act, talk about an agreement which has potential consequences. So if Mr. Robinson's dream had come true, then he would be covered. But it's just because his mind was not successful that he's not. Is that that is my position because I believe that the clear language of the statute talks about effects uh, of the enterprise on interstate commerce and not potential effects. Now, so Council, are you arguing that uh, this gold mine operation doesn't even come within Congress's power to regulate, or is it your position that Congress has uh, intended to exercise less than its full power under the RICO statute? It wasn't clear to me. I believe that Congress does have the power uh, in, in different ways to regulate gold mines such as the one that existed in this case. Even ones that aren't successful. Even, even ones that are not successful under co- uh, Congress's uh, uh, different co- powers that Congress has. But it's my position that the RICO statute, which refers to the, the gold mine as the enterprise, does not cover the gold mine in this particular case. Not, not the different powers that, commerce, that Congress has. The commerce power doesn't have power to regulate even this mine under the commerce power if it wanted to. I believe that uh, it would have that power if it wanted to. But I do not believe that the RICO statute in this instance reached this gold mine. So if you invest in Strike It Rich, you're covered by RICO. But if you invest in... It turns out to be a bust. You're not covered. That may that may be the possible consequence of the statute uh, the way it is written. I suppose it's a lemonade stand that uh, that doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't affect interstate commerce. And if it turns into McDonald's, it does. Uh, well, uh, under the government's theory, uh, I believe that the lemonade stand would affect interstate commerce because uh, any activity has some effect on interstate commerce. My position is that there must be a substantial effect on interstate commerce, and therefore the, the lemonade stand would not, but uh, a McDonald's uh, franchise might, depending on the particular activities. The Mr. Warren, what do you have to say about the Russell case? The Russell case uh, is uh, the Russell case looked at Title VIII of the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970 and uses language which is different than the RICO statute. Um, Russell, or Section 844I of Title 18, talks about buildings, uh, vehicles, property that are used in activities which affect interstate commerce. The RICO statute, on the other hand, talks about enterprises which affect interstate commerce. The RICO statute does not address enterprises uh, which are used in activities which affect interstate commerce. Uh, Therefore, I believe that there is a significant difference and that Congress was aware of that difference when it passed both of those statutes since they were both parts of the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970. 
Uh, furthermore, in the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970, Congress in I'm sorry, the, the arson statute is Title 11. Um, Title 8 was the gambling statute, which says that if uh, uh, certain requirements are met, if certain, certain number of people gamble and so on, then there is a per se effect on interstate commerce. So I believe that in, in passing the Organized Crime Control Act, Congress was well aware of the different approaches it could take to interstate commerce. Uh, with the arson statute, it used language uh, buildings and so on engaged in activities which affect interstate commerce. RICO, it used language, enterprises which affect interstate commerce. And in the gambling statute, it defined a class of activities. If, if Congress uh, has the power to regulate the output of gold mines or gold mines, even local mines, because like wheat, they affect, what reason is there in this statute to believe that Congress would not have wanted to bring within the statute every single enterprise that is a member of this class. Here, the reason the language is jurisdictional, I take it, in the statute. In the Sherman Act, for example, they're interested in going after only certain kinds of price-fixing agreements. But here the language is jurisdictional. They'd like every pizza parlor to fall within it if they could, wouldn't they? I, I agree, Justice Breyer. Congress may have wanted to bring every enterprise under its jurisdiction, but I would submit that is beyond the commerce power of Congress. Oh, is this now beyond the power of commerce, Congress, to say uh, this gold? In other words, you're saying now Congress doesn't have the constitutional power to penalize investment in this kind of gold mine, this kind of investment? Uh, that is my position with the approach that Congress used in this particular case. It has defined well, I just asked you that same question. You said, no, Congress could reach it, but it didn't. Now, what is your position? It, it has just shifted dramatically. Uh, with, with all respect, Justice O'Connor, I believe that if Congress had defined a class of gold mines that it wished to regulate, then the individual mines within that class could be uh, aggregated to establish a substantial effect on interstate commerce. But when Congress uses the generic term enterprise, which covers virtually every activity within the United States, it's a class that is so broad that it is tantamount to the to trying to exercise the commerce power itself over every activity. The, the rationale, I would submit, of a, a class analysis is that classes are subsets of the whole and that Congress can properly pick out particular classes and regulate those classes. Well, it, it can, but why does it follow from that that Congress may not do it otherwise? In other words, why does it, why does it have to make that subclass identification? I don't, I don't see your basis for assuming that. If Congress did not make the, the, the subclass classification, then effectively it would be regulating every enterprise from the lemonade stand to General Motors. Well, the, I mean, that doesn't fall. I mean, there still are, are, the, are, the, are the, uh, the substantially affecting commerce test. It doesn't mean that it takes over 
every activity in the country. It simply means it goes as far as it can go. And uh, what reason is there to assume uh, textually or constitutionally that it can only go as far as it can go if it does it by the specific identification of what you call subclasses to be regulated? Well, the, the statute itself, um, addition, in addition to uh, the the class which would be enterprises which have illicit funds invested uh, in them has words of limitation, which, in the words... But that's, that's a different argument. I mean, you're now making a textual argument, and I understood you before to be saying that if Congress wants to legislate to its limit, it must do so as a constitutional matter, I suppose, by identifying each so-called subclass which it wishes uh, to regulate to the extent of its power. And I didn't understand that to be an argument based on the text of this statute. I understood that to be an argument based on the way Congress has to exercise its constitutional power. Maybe I misunderstood. I would, I would, I would agree with that, uh, that position, um, that it's, it's not a textual question. Uh, okay. If it's not a textual question, what then is the constitutional basis for your imposition of this identify the subclass requirement before Congress can legislate to the extent of its powers. Where do you get that? Well, I, I believe as a matter of, of logic, if, if nothing else, that if Congress can define uh, a class as including all enterprises in the United States, then effectively the commerce power has no limitation. And as even the, the government can see... Well, it has no limitation beyond the substantially affecting commerce limitation, and Congress would say that's absolutely right. That's just what we intend to do. But I think the government's position is that, you, that Congress could legislate over um, all enterprises in the United States and then could use those, uh, could aggregate those and, and declare or ask the court to interpret those, that aggregation as having a substantial effect on, on commerce. And therefore, there would be no distinction between interstate and intrastate commerce. Every, every type of commerce would be subject to congressional legislation. I thought that was your position, too. I, I thought you were just saying Congress could do that, but didn't do it here. I, I thought it was essentially a, an interpretive argument you were making rather than a constitutional argument. I'm, I'm making uh, two arguments, Justice Scalia. I, I do not believe as a matter of uh, constitutional law that, that Congress can with this kind of class approach, exercise jurisdiction over every class. I'm also making a statutory argument that it did not do so in this case. But your constitutional argument is based on the assumption they define everything to go into the class. But how does that respond to the argument that that here the only class is gold mines? Well, gold mines are not defined uh, either either by, uh, by Congress in the statute or in the legislative history. Um, unlike the, the Russell case, for example, where uh, the legislative history reflected that there was a congressional concern about buildings, and, th- and this court was then able to interpret the class of activities as being commercial real estate, there's nothing in the statute or its legislative history to indicate any concern about gold mines. So, no, the, but may I go back to Russell for a second? Your distinction, if I understand it, is that there it talked about the whole class of activities, and here it talks about the activities of the particular enterprise in, in this statute. Right. The, and, and so that if this statute had read, instead of any enterprise which is engaged in or the activities of which affect uh, interstate commerce, if it had said any enterprise which is engaged in activities which affect interstate commerce, 
then you would agree you would lose. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I uh, I disagree with the uh, with the position of the government that the the words affect uh, interstate commerce have a general meaning which we can look at and uh, and take in every statute. I believe that those words have been used in different uh, in different ways, and that we have to take a, a close look at uh, at the way the words are used in a particular statute. And it's it's my position that those words um, reflect uh, an, an intent that only substantial effects on interstate commerce uh, be cognizable under the RICO statute. To what extent do you rely on the Ninth Circuit point about the distance of Alaska? Wouldn't the same thing apply to the two states that are very close to each other? Just as I agree with you, Justice Ginsburg. I do not rely on the, on the Ninth Circuit uh, to that extent because uh, I, I think that uh, almost any activity uh, in the United States or in any given state uh, draws supplies and purchases supplies from another state, whether uh, we're talking about Alaska or, or California uh, or New York or Wyoming. So I, I do not rely on the, the Ninth Circuit distinction in, in that regard. Um, as far as the activities of the enterprise, uh, the government would lump uh, anything that happened in connection with the gold mine and call it uh, interstate commerce. The uh, activities of the gold mine, in our view, were those activities which were ongoing and which were unique to this particular mine, and that would be the extraction of minerals from the ground and the sale of minerals in well, Alaska. How about hiring employees to come to Alaska from somewhere else? Well, that uh, is, I would argue, first, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, is not technically uh, uh, an activity of the, the mine. It's, uh, you don't think uh, finding people to run the operation is an activity of the mine? Well, to the to the extent that it is an activity and can be viewed as an activity, uh, I would argue that it uh, did not constitute any kind of uh, substantial effect in this case. It's, a, it's, a, it's the type of activity, if you will, that is a part of every business. Uh, there are probably few businesses uh, that do not have people who come from um, other states to, to work at one time or another. Uh, it's it's not a significant part of the activity of the mine if it is considered an activity of the mine. Mr. Warren, what's your best case? What, what, what case displays uh, an interpretation by this Court uh, of the word affecting uh, that, uh, that would uh, uh, make you win this case? I believe the analogy uh, to the, the Sherman Act, some of the Sherman Act cases, doesn't doesn't involve the word affecting. I mean, I, I agree. That's a wonderful line of cases. Unfortunately, it doesn't have anything to do with this. Uh, well, I, I don't know that I agree that uh, the Sherman Act doesn't have anything to, to do with, with RICO. 
because the Sherman Act does talk about the about effects on interstate commerce, or at least the, the, the Court's interpretation of the Sherman Act in various cases talks about that. In restraint of trade between the states is what you're talking about, and, and the Court said you're, you know, the, that that seems to focus on the individual activity, or at least we used to say that. Um, but you, you, don't, you don't have a single case in which affecting is, uh, has been interpreted by this Court uh, as you urge us to interpret it here. Affecting has, has been interpreted by this Court in class of activities cases. Um, and the, the Court has indicated that when there is a class, there must be a substantial effect on, on interstate commerce. I do not have a case uh, which discusses this issue in terms of a non-class analysis and addresses an individual activity. But it's my position that the, the jurisprudence of this Court requires that there be a substantial effect on interstate commerce. Otherwise, the distinction between interstate and interstate commerce is, is lost. And, and there is no limit to the, the commerce power. Mr. Warren, in connection with employees, uh, perhaps the Alaska distance does make a distinction that cuts against you. There was a whole line of cases about people who go up to Alaska to work and then come back to California sick and, and uh, lame and, and our burden on the California workers' compensation system. So wouldn't the effect of getting employees to come to Alaska, wouldn't that have an amplified effect on interstate commerce? Looking the, the distance between, say, New York and New Jersey? Looking, looking at uh, any particular activity, um, there, there might be uh, a heightened effect if there are a number of employees coming from one state to another. Um, I would point out uh, that in, in this case there were um, a total of only five or six employees who worked at this particular mine over the, over the span of three years. So uh, even if these employees did travel in interstate commerce, it was uh, uh, as the, the Ninth Circuit uh, pointed out, it was certainly uh, not of any importance. Um, in, in fact, uh, I, would, I would almost refer to, uh, to some of these incidents, uh, such as the travel of employees, the, the driving of a, a Cadillac, which the government refers to as, uh, as incidental effects, uh, a term uh, which this Court used in um, Oregon State Medical Society to describe uh, uh, sporadic and, uh, and few contacts with interstate commerce. And I would submit that the same is true in, in this situation. May I ask a, another question? Just looking at the general purpose of the statute to reach uh, competitive, the use of, uh, in, in competitive markets of funds that are the product of uh, income derived from a pattern of racketeering activity, basically organized crime. Now, I understand it's and given broader construction than perhaps Congress intended. But looking at the heart of the statute uh, and, and wanting to police investments of this kind of money, why would Congress want to do anything less than its full power to reach all of the, the use of proceeds of this kind of activity? What would the reason be for the I mean, what, what, what sense does your distinction make in terms of the overall purpose of the statute? Uh, there could be uh, there could be some concern about the uh, the federal the federal state balance uh, that that could be one reason why Congress would not uh, want to cover every single enterprise. Uh, 
Um, no, but the, the, the threshold inquiry has to be, there's no doubt about the threshold of you regulating the proceeds of activities that are clearly subject to the power of Congress to regulate the organized crimes, you know, getting the money in the first place. And yes. then we're talking about what can they do with it. Yes. And that basically the full power answer would say they can't do anything with it. We want to get it all. And you say that, that uh, wh why wouldn't that be the, the more normal reading of the statute? Well, even if, even if it were the more normal reading of the statute, and, uh, and I don't know the answer to your question, Justice Stevens, um, but there, there may be certain types of activities that, that Congress wants to reach, and it wants to use its full powers to reach those activities, but the commerce power just does not allow it to reach those activities. I guess you could say the same reason that... Uh we, we think or, or used to think that the Sherman Act doesn't cover small businesses that, uh, that uh, don't substantially, individually, substantially affect interstate commerce, that the federal government left it to state Valentine Acts to, to, to do that job with respect to uh, smaller enterprises. Uh, that would uh, or the National Labor Relations Act, a lot of, uh, a lot of acts have been interpreted have been limited by either the statute or the regulations that implement them to, uh, to major uh, interstate activities, leaving the states to do the rest. I would agree with that. Um, I, I would again um, refer the Court to the, the Sherman Act, because even though the, the language of the Sherman Act um, does not talk about affecting interstate commerce, I believe it provides a, a useful analog uh, to an analysis. This Court's Sherman, Sherman Act cases have historically talked about a substantial effect on interstate commerce, and I would submit that is what the RICO statute talks about. The gold mine in Alaska uh, sold gold intrastate to refiners in Alaska. Uh, there's, no, there's no evidence, although there is an inference, that that gold was subsequently sold outside of Alaska. But in the scheme of what probably is a, a multi-trillion dollar market, uh, as the court below pointed out, $200,000 over a period of three years uh, was not a significant amount of activity. They, they also took out 30000 didn't they? I'm sorry? Didn't they take out some nuggets or something? Uh, there was approximately $30,000. So 15 percent of the output was, was uh, taken out of state? Uh, that's correct. But that, that uh, was not an activity of the mine. If anything, that, was, uh, that could be looked at as uh, um, one of the participants in the mine, Mr. Robertson, the, the respondent, just taking the, the money out of Alaska. This was not an activity of the mine where it sold mine or sold gold in Alaska, or it sold gold outside of Alaska. This was somebody just taking, uh, taking the gold. Um, if, if that were to provide a jurisdictional basis, the fact that somebody could take something from an enterprise and travel to another state, then a, again, uh, almost any activity could have some effect on interstate commerce. Mr. Warren, the Ninth Circuit was obviously concerned about the sweep of this provision, and there was an issue left over. I think the, dis the what was the issue that was left over about sentencing under this count? Well, um, this count, uh, the, the RICO count, brings um, the 
uh, brings Mr. Robertson, Robertson's sentence within the uh, sentencing guidelines. And um, without the RICO count, then all other counts that he was convicted on would not be within the sentencing guidelines because they occurred prior to November 1, 1987. Yeah. The, the government acknowledges in principle that the Commerce Clause has limits. Uh, its approach, however, uh, is to abandon uh, what I would submit is the long-standing substantial effect test of this Court uh, and would give Congress an unbridled power to punish any kind of criminal conduct. Uh, this could result in the, the punishment of criminal conduct, which has really nothing to do with interstate commerce. Um, it can result in overburdening of the federal courts, uh, an expansive use of the RICO statute in both the criminal and the civil context. And I would submit it could act, will act, to significantly affect the federal-state balance by upholding the language in the RICO statute in this particular case, which is to view affects interstate commerce as giving Congress uh, the power to legislate over any type of effect, Congress can simply pass a statute, indicate that it is exercising its Commerce Clause jurisdiction over an activity or activities which affect interstate commerce, and there basically is no check. I would urge the Court to affirm the ruling of the Court below. Thank you, Mr. Warren. Uh, Mr. Estrada, you have one minute remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I have one case in response to the question you asked earlier. It is not cited in our brief. The name is U.S. versus Ferger, F-E-R-G-E-R, 250 U.S., 199, and the citation is at page 203, in which after stating the substance of the affectation uh, doctrine, the Court stated, it would be superfluous to refer to the authorities which, from the foundation of the government, have measured the exertion by Congress of its power to regulate commerce by the principle just stated, since the doctrine is elementary and is but an expression of the text of the Constitution, citing the necessary and proper clause. I have nothing further. Very well. The case is submitted.